Here in Luke 6, we looked at last week how our Lord stands in the great prophetic tradition of Moses, and here He is giving us, however, not a word that is going to be updated like an additional prophetic figure or an additional Moses who is to come with a greater word from our Lord. But here our Lord stands providing us with the final word of Revelation, one that will not be updated as far as ethics is concerned, how we are to live our life in time, where our priorities are, where our hope is set. This is that indeed that final word, which makes this so significant for us this morning that Right here is the ethic or the life of kingdom citizens, um, both from this first century context where our Lord is speaking it, and now and forevermore until the kingdom does come in full. This text is for each and every one of us as we live by faith in this age that is passing away. Significant of what our Lord is doing here in Luke 6 is He is taking our sense, our kind of human, our external or our natural sense of what it means to be blessed of God, or he kind of takes our natural sensibilities to the good life, and here he radically inverts it. That is, he takes our sense of what we simply look out and see as the life right side up, and in a very short discourse, he turns it upside down. To lay hold of the significance can only be by faith because quite naturally, each of us sees in these categories life right side up. But our Lord here instructs deeply to those who lay hold of Him by faith, what you may think is right side up in this age is most oftentimes life upside down. This paradigm shift is huge, right? It's so critical and significant for the crowd that is gathered there in the first century of whom we'll review in just a moment. But indeed, it's just as staggering to each and every one of us who are sensory, who are human. This is not a text that we can simply look at and make a momentary decision as though we'd say something along the lines of, I have decided to follow Jesus, or I am a disciple. Therefore, I am blessed to be poor, hungry, weep, and experience persecution. It isn't momentary, but rather this is a pathway of discipleship. That is, we must, each and every one of us, regularly recalibrate our lives by such texts as this. Each and every Lord's Day, one of my favorite theologians refers to Lord's Day worship as a resalinization project. That is, the salt regathers to be made salty once again. And this recalibrating factor of Lord's Day worship is exactly what this text has in mind, this sense of a regular and ongoing sense of what it does truly mean to live life right side up according to Scripture and not our own sensibilities. Consider how this is so staggering to the crowd who is present in the first century as we certainly find ourselves somewhere in the mix Whenever there is a great multitude or a compilation, composition of many different types of people, you can bet each and every one of our personalities or our constitutions is somewhere present. 
So when we see such a great gathering and a multiple crowds gathering to hear our Lord, you and I are somewhere indeed present. This is how the text so directly speaks to each and every one of us, answering the right questions, giving us the right directions. Consider then the crowd that he is addressing and their expectations for life and what they simply perceive as life lived right side up. Who is the crowd? Look in verse 20, and we move forward from 20 through 26. This has been read for you. Look at the crowd that is gathering as we conclude our time in 20 through 26. Verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Now, who exactly is he then speaking to? Because right here, if we simply say he lifted up his eyes to his disciples, we need to define who the disciples are simply to recognize who is he speaking to? Is this a certain class of people who will experience this kind of turmoil? Is it a certain individual who is a super-Christian who will endure? Who, who exactly is going to go through such difficulty? Or what does it mean for them, the disciples? I get that. That group of people live their life right side up in this manner. For the rest of us, we live it right side up in this manner. Because remember, he was strictly speaking to his disciples when he gave those words. So it's, it's upon us certainly to ask, who then is this crowd of disciples? We'll join back up a little bit higher and we have the fuller picture. Look in verse 12 of the same text. We looked last week. He says, in these days he went out to a mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples Now, notice next, he chose from them, from that larger crowd of disciples, many who were there who had received his word. From that larger crowd, he chose 12. At this point, those who are particularly chosen out of that larger multitude are here considered to be the apostles. So right there, we already see the disciples. By the time we get down to verse 20, disciples is a broader category than just the 12 apostles. Unless we say, of course, according to their office or their commission from the Lord, they indeed will weep. They will experience hardship. They will be persecuted because they're the apostles. But we already see earlier, there are many more disciples there besides the twelve. Jump down to verse 17 and continue to see exactly who is the crowd that we might find ourselves right here in this text. Verse 17, and he came down with them and stood on a level place. And then you see there again described with a great crowd of his disciples and further a great multitude of people from all Judea in Jerusalem all the way to the northern seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So again, at this point in time, by the time we join to verse 20, there is indeed out of consideration of the disciples, there is a great multitude of people. Why is this significant to understand that Jesus directs his words to the entire crowd who had gathered? Hundreds of people, perhaps were not there, so perhaps even thousands of individuals who are here to hear, to receive the word, to see his miracles. Why is it so significant that we understand that he is directing his words here to the entire crowd? Well, because... There's a crowd full of people present with old covenant expectations. Those who have read the old covenant and are experiencing the days of the Messiah to be a very particular way of blessing, a very particular set of provisions that are to come. This entire crowd has gathered, certainly knowing 
the prophetic literature before them, that which gave them hope and the expectations that were very certain of the days of the Messiah. Many who were there who went through the expanded teachings of the schools of the rabbis, those who indeed had a knowledge of prophetic literature, but those who were even particularly further schooled in the rabbinic literature that then spoke of the coming days of the Messiah. So here is a gather to gaze upon who indeed might be the Messiah. They have deep personal expectations for what life right side up with the Messiah is going to be. For instance, if I could read for you two passages, just briefly, small little passages out of Jewish texts that predate the New Testament by roughly 150 years. So what is on the mind of the audience as they come and they gather and they sit at the feet of our Lord? If you are the Messiah, this is what's going to happen. What are some of these expectations? Again, documented in community well before the New Testament. Indeed, on the minds and hearts of many who were present on this hillside hearing his words. One passage of, the, of, this, of these texts reads this way, quote, The coming blessing of God in the Messiah will be seen in the overthrowing of his enemies in judgment and establishing a day of freedom, peace, and comfort for all his people, end quote. So, as many are gathering, and our Lord here in verse 20 lifts his eyes and he looks upon his disciples, all these gathered to hear from him with their expectations in play, he undoubtedly knows there is expectation here for me to overthrow the enemies in great judgment and to establish a day of freedom, peace, and comfort for these people. This is an expectation that is present within the crowd of life right side up. Further, another text out of that same body of literature that predates the New Testament, speaking of the crowd's expectation, reads also, quote, A day when the smallest shall become a thousand. This is what they're learning. This is what they're being taught. This is what they've meditated on. This is rabbinic literature. The day of the Messiah will be a day when the smallest shall become a thousand and the least a mighty nation. Indeed, upon the minds of many there, that they were to rise up physically, politically, as a mighty nation. From these and other expectations, as our Lord gazes upon the crowd with many different expectations and understandings of the blessing of God, some in the crowd, there gathered, as he begins to speak, some of you present, some of your constitutions, your sensibilities, your senses of what's right and what's wrong, how life is to be experienced, what it means to be blessed of God. Each and every one of us present in this crowd with different expectations. Some of us and some of them want elevated legalism. 
When the Messiah gets here, a desire for greater legalism. And we think, well, I thought we always reject legalism. We don't really want legalism, but we do. We do. Why? Because it confirms our sense of piety and self-righteousness that we believe to be true about ourselves. It provides leverage over our neighbor. Some in the Pharisees are the scribes desiring this greater uprising of legalistic legislation, that which provides their sensibilities about themselves. It confirms upon them their sense of piety and self-righteousness. Some want the Lord indeed to be the great head of legalism. Others present within the crowd certainly in their sense of understanding history and its forward look and the visitation of the Messiah want violent revolution. Some wanting to experience physical freedom, power and deliverance over their enemies. Some in the crowd desiring greater legalism, self-righteousness, proof of their piety over their neighbor. Others seeking violent revolution to overthrow their enemies, enemies to their freedom and desire to acquire power. Finally, there's an expectation within the crowd most certainly for seclusion or a life of solitary quietness. Many throughout church history sought to be left alone in personal piety and quietness of life. Just leave me alone. Let me live out my existence quietly and undisturbed. What our Lord provides here to all who are present with all their expectations, both internal and external, violent revolution, internal legalism, or those who simply want to live a quiet existence. What our Lord provides here is quite a paradigm shift. It is liberating what He does provide. Yet it is also, if we look carefully, rather frightening of what He offers us. One author speaks this way about our Lord's discourse in a very short stroke. He says, quote, Beware that when you go to Jesus for help, He will both give to you, or excuse me, you will both give to Him and get from Him far more than you bargained for. This is the discourse that's before us. That when you go to Jesus for help, for deliverance, for following, you will both give to and get from Him far more than you bargained for. Be patient. Because the deal often doesn't work out in the immediate, the way that you're expecting. This is what our Lord is instructing in the life lived right side up, that to each of us naturally requires that we experience an inversion of our expectations. It is this issue of expectations that our Lord drives at, for there is a crowd before Him, both this morning, each of us before His Word. There is a crowd that is gathered. There is a crowd in the text who is gathered, who needs to be awakened, even some of us jolted 
into what it means to experience God's blessings in Christ. So that is the question that is before us for the next few moments. What does it mean to experience God's blessings in Christ? What does it mean, maybe we could even more simply ask, what does it mean to be blessed of God? This is the question that we bring to the text. Why? Look at verse 21. Blessed are. So he lift up his eyes on his disciples. All of these folks that are gathered with varying expectations. Some internal, some external. Some that just want to be left alone. Some that see power coming. Some that see it politically. Some that see it spiritually. All who have expectations. And he speaks thus. Blessed are you. Verse 21, blessed are you, blessed are you. Verse 22, blessed are you. He speaks forth the words of blessing. So what does it mean to experience His blessing? This is what He's describing. In a broad sketch of our passage, if we were to answer this question, what does it mean that he describes here? What does it mean to be blessed of God? In a broad sketch of our passage, what's important for our answering this question, that is, what does it mean to experience God's blessing? We must understand, and this is where I simply want to like, cover the whole passage just kind of an overview I'm not going to go each and every one that says, of course, you see it, that which is poor, that which is hungry, that which is weeping, that which is persecuting. Then you drop down to 24 and you see riches. It's, it's inverse, right? Riches, hunger, uh, mourning, or, or sorry, uh, fullness, laughter, and then finally you see it in reputation or popularity. So I'm not going to speak tick for tack each and every one. Rather, step back in a broad sketch, answering the question at the heart of the text. What does it mean to experience the blessing of God? Once again, important for our answering this question is to understand, on the one hand, this is kind of a summary of all the parts. On the one hand, Jesus is not teaching that the mere fact of being poor hungry, sorrowful, and physically burdened or oppressed proves God's blessing. Once again, what does it mean to be blessed? Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And he begins to fill out the data, the great inverse. Well, then we ask ourselves, but what does this mean to be blessed? Blessed are you. What is at the heart of the blessing that is upon me? Is it in the mere fact that I'm poor? Is that the proof? Infallibly, this is God's blessing. I'm poorer than you. Is that, yes, Lord, the hand of the Lord is upon me. I can write worse checks than you. And so in my own way, I take that as confirmation of my personal piety. I wouldn't be as dead broke If I were like you, more indulgent sinner, 
Is that, so we have to, because clearly he says, blessed are you who are poor. So you say, okay, but, so what does that mean? Be poor? What, what, is, what is at the heart of this text that beats that I and the crowd must receive? On the one hand, Jesus is not teaching that the mere fact of being poor, hungry, sorrowful, or physically oppressed proves God's blessing. Neither is one a greater disciple by pursuing any one of them. This was uh, uh, kind of a, uh, an experiment in the medieval church where we go into solitary, can, uh, kind of uh, be away from people, solitary life. You think of monks and so forth during the medieval period of the church where, again, the pursuit of poverty was the mark of virtue and godliness. And so you had many who pursued that, many who still do pursue that as a testament to one's piety. But he is not teaching that if you pursue poor and, being poor and filled with hunger or even experience life as sorrowful as you absolutely can, you are no greater a disciple than one who does not. On the other hand, as we look at the woes, you would consider in the sketch of the text, but woe to you who are rich, woe to you who are full, woe to you who experience laughter and, and levity. Joy in this age. Woe to you when everybody likes you. We say at this point, neither is Jesus teaching at the mere fact of being wealthy, full, vibrant in your experiences, or popular with many folk proves God's curse be upon you. So that, again, each of our quest is to be disliked by as many people as possible so that we can indeed know confirmation that God's blessing be upon us. Rather, in fact, God's people in this age, even within this community this morning, there are different levels of each and every one of these experiences. Some who are experiencing the hardship of finance and its depletion. Seeming that there's no strategy to go around or get out. Some who maybe perhaps it'd be hard to come by hunger, but we'd roll hunger into another category of the experience of ongoing struggle for finance. They're related, being poor and hungry. Some who are sorrowful in ways to almost doubt that you'll ever laugh again. Some with parents uh, sick, some with others, children, so on and so forth. Sorrows in this age that plague the conscience and the mind. Some who um, are, on the other hand, better financially off. Some who experience the joys of fullness seemingly to almost never have a feather in their pathway, experiencing a kind providence. Some who seem to always be able to find something to be joyous about, and many who are just popular with others and well-received, almost universally understood and accepted. God's people in this age, much broader than Redeemer Community Church, Indeed, the global church 
are comprised of all of these varying conditions and varying degrees. So we all agree. Our Lord is not saying, therefore, you can only be His people if you're poor, neither you cannot be His people because you experience wealth. So we're past the categories of experience as that which defines your blessing. So if God's blessing is not infallibly found, that is, if we were to interpret, I, I don't want to go too far and say that, again, uh, wealth is not a blessing or in seasons of being broke. It's not its own form of blessing. Clearly, that is being taught in this text, that both are means by which the Lord can bless. Lest we kind of just say God is kind of removed from the situation and you might get rich and you might not, and we don't want to say either one is from the Lord. We recognize, indeed, that both are from the Lord, but yet, as we must be careful in interpreting either state to be full or to go without, we cannot simply say one for one that this is God's blessing and that is not. This kind of interpretation for us, either for ourselves or for our neighbor, is a dangerous one to make. You can look back at the book of Job, of course, as wisdom literature that instructs such interpretation is deeply problematic. So, if God's blessing is not then for sure or infallibly found in external circumstances, then what is our Lord describing here? What is He describing for us? What's at the heart of this passage for each and every one of us? The answer is this, if I could put forward and then I'll try to prove it or defend it and hopefully you believe it. The answer is this. Jesus is describing how the blessing of God transcends circumstance. But notice carefully what I move forward in, the, in that completion of that thought or the completion of that sentence. So that again, it's not altogether otherworldly. Not altogether. No, I have to be kind of qualify each statement, be as careful as I can with what our Lord is saying. But as he says, but what I'm putting forward is saying, Jesus is describing how the blessing of God transcends circumstance and so enables us. So, so, so in other words, it's not altogether removed, but it has a very translatable, concrete, measurable way of being here and now with it. The blessing of God transcends circumstance and so enables us to rightly receive and rightly interpret our imminent circumstances. Or instead of imminent, we could say present set of circumstances. Again, if we get through all of the items, item A, B, C, and D, it's, it's, it's converse, A, B, C, and D, we could just move to what? So, so between the two pathways, what's at the heart of it? And that is the blessing of God transcends such circumstance and so enables us to receive and rightly interpret our imminent circumstances. What is, if I could move the discussion a little bit forward here, what is then? the great blessing of God, which I have put forward, 
is that which Jesus sees as transcending, indeed teaching, that transcends life's circumstances. What is this great blessing which transcends life's circumstances? The answer from this passage, I write it this way, the answer, the great blessing of God which transcends life circumstances is a faith that receives and rests upon Christ alone. That is the great blessing of God that transcends circumstance. A faith that receives and rests upon Christ alone. Now if I can proceed and show how that's at work in this text. Look at beginning of verse 20 as we see this great blessing unfolding in the text to each and every one. No matter your expectations, this is the answer to lay down those expectations and receive that which is proclaimed to you. Look at verse 20 in a brief review, beginning again. He lifts his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. Right? Wait, wait a minute. That, that, that my, my, my right side up is this. No, no. but I'm, I'm saying it's, it's, it's this way. Blessed are you who are poor. What's the grounds of experiencing joy in being poor? You notice it right in the text. The, the next thing, what's the grounds for that being a blessing? Because you're going to be sad all the time and melancholy. No, there's got to be something richer than that. Something that, that, that does make it a blessed experience in this age. What is that? As he speaks to many who have a difficult providence, what is their blessing in it? It is this, yours is the kingdom of God. That's the blessing. Indeed, in this world, they experience hardship. But they remain blessed despite of hardship. In fact, sometimes because of hardship. Because they're kingdom citizens, first and foremost. This is a way to receive and rightly interpret difficulty in life is in light of the life that is to come. These are the optics. This is seen with high definition. Yours is the kingdom of God. Again, I would press further. How is one a kingdom member? We'll get to that as we get to the very bottom. Verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry. Don't think that hunger means you're not cared for. Don't think that hunger, because you're poor, and naturally the next domino to fall is hunger. There's no money then there is no food. It's an escalating hardship. But, but, but he sticks with it. Not only will you experience hardship in finance, but that which goes with it, hunger. But don't think for a moment in these circumstances that you are not loved. That you are not, as evidenced by this hunger, blessed. Blessed. 
for, here's the grounds, the foundation statement in the passage, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. Again, speaking of difficult providence, an age that is passing away. Sorrow will be your experience. Some of you, kind of, and some of you in ways that are unknown by others. Don't think that weeping speaks louder than your blessing. For statement of grounds that interprets that statement. What, how, how, do, how do I receive this word as I weep? Because I'm giving you a way of going forward. You will laugh again. Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you, spurn your name even as being evil. Now, the great grounds of the entire text, whether it is citizenship that is in the kingdom in verse 20, whether it is experience of future satisfaction in verse 21, whether it is that jubilance in the second portion of 21 of laughter and levity and joy that is to come. The great statement that upholds it all is that each one of these are blessed so far as they are in connection to or specifically in verse 22 on account of the Son of Man. Again, no individual state stands alone as a state of blessing simply because it's experienced. But its blessedness is that one experiences a faith that rests in and receives all of Christ in, through these difficult circumstances. That's what it means to be blessed in any one of these difficulties, in any one of these life's hardships, is that they don't defeat, they nourish in their own way, they serve and they provide for a faith that rests in the Son of Man. Every one of these blessings mentioned here by our Lord are eschatological. That means they are the blessings that are to come, are otherworldly. A disciple is called in this age in many times and in many ways to experience your joy being delayed. Again, it's not like a moment. This might happen to you at one time. Here is going to be a characteristic Sometimes in seasons more intense than others, nonetheless, this will be the mark of a disciple. He or she will experience many joys delayed. He or she will experience many blessings deferred. A true disciple's hope is here taught to never be set upon life's circumstances 
but upon the Son of Man. So further we would define, how are you currently blessed then? Indeed, it seems to begin making sense. How are you, individual Christian, blessed today? You, you get the idea, again, of future blessing and, and blessing delayed and joys delayed, but how can I experience, again, a sense of being blessed? I hear that word going forward, and yet I, I hear blessed are, and yet I experience being poor. It, it, it's hard. How, how do I connect this sense of blessing? What, what do you mean, blessed are? What is the definition, again, of blessing, or what does it mean to experience the blessing of God? What is the blessedness of your current estate? The answer is the blessedness of your current estate is herein described as a spiritual well-being, a spiritual blessedness. Once again, through life's turmoil, travail, and its difficulties, a disciple is indeed blessed even in the midst of hardship because his or her faith rests squarely upon Christ alone. His word is a better word to the disciple than the word of circumstance. That which seems to speak so hurtfully, so loudly in my life, I yet hear by the grace of God a better word. And the disciple in highs and in lows lives their life on account of the Son of Man. This is the mark of a disciple. Sometimes ready, sometimes not so much. But in all things, our faith never chooses a different object. We don't, we don't set it, therefore, in difficulty upon riches to get me out of this predicament. Therein it becomes the object of my deliverance. Woe to you. I said having my belly filled, joy and gladness resounding about, all of life serene and perfect, is my salvation. Woe to you. In the great tradition of the prophets, our Lord here, similar to that of Jeremiah, who once proclaimed, quote, Blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. So, our Lord, blessed are those whose hope is in Him. Rejoice. Leap in hardship for joy. For behold, 
your reward is great in heaven. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for what it means to be blessed. It isn't by external circumstance alone that we would digest all that is coming at us so quickly and the difficulty of the human experience in time as those who belong to yet another time. The tension then between the times is experienced every day in our hearts, challenges and rivals our faith, breaks and burdens our families. Lord, we look to that day, our future reward, our joys, Lord, deferred to that age, our greatest blessings. We look forward to receiving at your return. Lord, strengthen us and our faith where it is weak, that it might rest afresh upon the Son of Man who delivered us and is returning. Strengthen us, Lord to be your people in an age that is passing away. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Could you just remain there for